0: Welcome to the first of two podcast interviews with the faculty of the educational initiative entitled "Clinical Considerations of Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies in Healthcare Systems Design, Implementation, and Management." These podcasts were produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational donation provided by Amgen and an educational grant from Astellas Pharma Global Development Inc. The content for this podcast was adapted from an interview with Dr. Stephen Goldman, recorded in December two thousand ten. During the 45th ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting and Exhibition, Dr. Goldman is an independent consultant with extensive experience in academic and clinical medicine, public health, federal medical product safety regulations, and the pharmaceutical industry. Dr. Goldman will discuss the background, history, and current status of risk evaluation and mitigation strategies. Welcome, Dr. Goldman. Thank you. Given your professional history, which includes a position at FDA and in the industry as well as nearly a decade as an international safety consultant, you have quite a perspective on the evolution of REMS. Do you think we are on the right track in terms of improving the safe use of medications in this country? Good question.
1: Generally, I'd say yes. I think the things that we've seen uh, over the past several years is uh, a refinement of what we're now calling on the United States REMS, and in Europe, the European risk management plans, and something very similar in Japan. I think what's happened is that there's been clear understanding that in order to, number one, approve products that might ordinarily not have been approved if there was not a plan in place based on the safety information we had from the clinical trials and the animal data, and then have a plan in place for how the products will be followed once they hit the market, or products when they've hit the market having either an unanticipated safety problem or a problem that was considered a possibility that has now come to fruition, we can now keep products on the market in circumstances where before, without these plans being available, they would have come off the market. So, you know, in the overall, being able to set programs up that can keep effective products on the market, that's definitely an improvement. Having said that, I think that the implementation of these plans has been somewhat rocky, depending on which country you're looking at and which systems you have. And I don't think that the rollout was as successful as it might have been in explaining why these systems are needed, how they're going to be implemented. So now we're kind of in a catch-up situation where now we're trying to explain why we have them when they've actually been in place for several years.
0: Do you have any ideas on how the management and implementation of RIMS could be improved?
1: Also a good question. You know, again, the FDA were not the ones who crafted the REM statute. That was crafted by Congress. The FDA had a very well-done guidance, which is still in effect called Risk Minimization Action Plans, the Risk Map Guidance that came out in 2005. And that guidance came out of, of two and three years. Of, it started as a white paper, then it was a draft guidance. There were two public meetings associated with that, with a lot of public comments that came through. And they ended up with, uh, I think, a terrific guidance that incorporates a lot of the principles that the REMs use. One of the big differences is that if you have a medication guide solely, that is, with no other factors such as certification of providers or especially pharmacies or anything that involves anything other than the use of a medication guide, that would not be considered a risk map, as opposed to under the statute, under FADA, then that would be considered a REM. So now you've got an entire category which is now under the federal statute that is considered a REMS, which would not have been considered that way before. So the numbers have gone up. I am not convinced that the numbers of the other kinds of REMS, which would have um, restricted distribution or certification program, or um, you would have to have a certain uh, lab result to be able to get the product and monitoring for that. I'm not convinced we're seeing that many more of those kinds of things as opposed to what we had previously. I think it's more systematized. I think that the FDA has, clearly has greater enforcement authority under the law uh, under FDA than it had previously. But the basic philosophy between a risk map and a REMS is actually quite similar in terms of what you're utilizing it for. And again, I think what's happening now is that people who are familiar with risk maps were generally folks in industry, generally folks in regulatory agencies, and the relatively few products that were involved with so many more products now considered to have REMs, I think you're now seeing another group of healthcare professionals, another system of healthcare, which are now involved, which may not have been involved with the crafting of the original documents that, quite frankly, REMs were based on in principle. So, I think we have a work cut out towards explaining how they're going to be used, and how feedback from the clinical community, which is vital, will get back into changing REMs, which actually does happen. One of the questions that came up this morning actually came up several times was what kind of input people can have with a REMS that's crafted while you have a product that's not yet marketed. That's a tougher issue because you're dealing with proprietary information, the product has not yet been approved. But as I pointed out to the group today, those things do go on, but they're not out in the open because they're generally done within a company with consultants and people from doing clinical trials and others, and it may not even be discussed in any kind of public forum until, let's say, there's an advisory committee uh, in terms of that. I think the FDA, I would imagine they're going to look at that because uh, the FDA clearly wants input from stakeholders, which would be obviously clinicians, patient organizations, uh, healthcare provider organizations. That's all to the good. Having said that, I don't know to what extent that kind of input can be done in pre-marketing as opposed to when a product's already hit the market and you're able to do that more, I think, in an open setting.
0: Can you envision additional ways in which physicians and pharmacists can work collaboratively to improve the safety of medication? There's a lot of ways. First of all, adverse
1: event reporting. This is my MedWatch hat. I'm a tremendous believer in adverse event reporting. They continue to be of vital importance because when a product hits the market, you only know a limited amount of information on safety based on a relatively small number of patients, animal data, and others. So you've got a basic sense of the overall benefit-risk profile, but you're not going to pick up rare events. The populations that may, be, that may be treated may be very different than the clinical trial group because of the exclusion criteria. Certainly, as an example, the medical device people have what's called MedSun, which is an initiative run with the FDA and designated hospitals, where they train them to be adverse event reporters, they train them to recognize adverse events. It's a wonderful program. We don't have the equivalent, believe it or not, in pharmaceuticals. We used to have them years ago, and the reason why we don't is, as usual, the money ran out. Every time I'm aware of such programs being run, they're very effective. So I think what we might be able to do through p and committees, through uh, the requirements for the Joint Commission in terms of accreditation, certainly the initiatives going on with CMS and others, there's a lot of good data out there. And the FDA is clearly working with organizations like the VA, the Department of Defense, and others to tap into their multi-million dollar patient Numbers in terms of those, using those for active surveillance, using them for hypothesis testing in terms of studies like observational studies that you can do or case control studies. I think there's a lot of potential that people are just beginning to tap, but nothing takes the place of the importance of clinicians, particularly pharmacists, uh, physicians, and others delivering care, because they're the ones seeing the patients. They're the one making the evaluations. And I do want to mention the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committees again because that's such a great avenue. We had a lot of success when I was at MedWatch working with them because there's so much material that comes through them, not just in what goes on the formulary, but also monitoring sentinel events, medication errors that come through there. And I would love to see more of an initiative focusing on the P&T committees for inpatient and whatever would be if there's any equivalent on the outpatient side. So organizations like ASHP, which has been a longtime MedWatch partner organization, their role is absolutely vital, and I hope they realize that because having been on all sides of it now, you know, I've been an uh, academic doc, I was a regulator uh, now, both as a teacher and certainly working in industry and with industry, I hope people realize that the reports are really valued, that people do look at what comes in, that they'll get a follow-up phone call if there's not enough information that's perceived. I guess the thing that people don't give enough credit for is nobody gets paid for reporting these adverse events. They do it because it's good public health. And frankly, I put a lot of stock in healthcare professionals doing this kind of reporting, and in the United States, consumers doing that kind of reporting. Those are very valued, and there's a lot of very well informed consumers who actually send in very
0: good quality reports. So I want to make sure people are aware of that in the U.S. Thank you, Dr. Goldman. My pleasure. This concludes this podcast. If you'd like to hear more from Dr. Goldman about clinical considerations of risk evaluation and mitigation strategies in healthcare systems, a web based continuing pharmacy education activity based on the mid year symposium will be available in March 2011. To access this activity and other related educational opportunities, visit the RIMS web portal at wwwashpadvantagecom RIMS.